This is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adapted Physical Education. I am joined with my good friend and colleague, Andrew Colombo Dugavito from the University of North Texas. How are you? Hanging in there. Yeah, <laughs> Just keeping good. my head above the water as much as I can. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. Thanks what for welcoming me back. Absolutely. So thanks for coming on the podcast to talk a little bit about yourself, how you view your work with autism and physical activity and adapted physical education, as well as how maybe you view physical activity and motor skills and such in, in regard to disability and the disability experience. So mm-hmm. let's just get started. You have been on the podcast. Yeah. I think it's been a little while though. And Probably. so can you briefly talk a little bit about who you are and kind of position yourself within the field of adapted physical education? Sure. So I'm at the University of North Texas. Uh, I've been here, well, this is my sixth year now, presently in the tenure process. So we'll see if I'm here much longer than this year. We're keeping fingers and toes crossed. Before I got into academia, before I did my PhD, I was a physical educator. I taught public school, um, elementary mostly, but some middle school in both Michigan and Colorado. I taught a little water safety instruction. I did coaching as most teachers do. I taught adult swim. I've taught summer camps. I've taught uh, high ropes courses when I was doing my PhD. So education has always been a really big part of what I do. And what got me into APE ultimately um, really was by chance. I was teaching in the public schools. I had no clue that, I mean, even a doctorate degree was a thing people did. And when I was teaching in Michigan, as a part of, you know, the, your certification process, you have to get advanced degrees, you ultimately have to get a master's, etc. And so just with the way things went, I said, well, you know, it's a recession, I said, job security is pretty important. Hey, there's this degree in what was called special physical education at the time, you know, it's now more widely adapted physical education. But I said, that's probably a good thing to have. I'll, I'll do that. It'll give me good job security. Little to knowing what was going to happen, I ended up falling in love with working with disabled populations. I've since come to acknowledge my own disabilities and identify as disabled. And that experience during my master's degree particularly introduced me to research and the research process and what I'd actually be able to do. And a lot of things clicked because I've always been really interested in how things work, why things work, how can we make things work better. And when I was teaching in the public schools, I start, I noticed a lot during my master's degree, as I was studying and working, that I said disabled kids move differently. I'm particularly interested in the autistic kids that I had in my class, because they might be, for all their sake, I was very naive and, and ignorant at the time, but for all other intensive purposes, they looked and acted mostly like my other kids, right? They may have had some differences, some quirks they may have had. They may have had some specific needs. They may need instruction in a different way, but overall their body moved, or, or at least I perceived it right from the outside as being able to, or having the ability to move as I would expect any other peer their age, but they weren't right. They were moving either delayed, they're moving differently. And really what started me is wanting to know why, why was this the case? And so that led me into my PhD work. I studied with Dr. Martin Block and Dr. Luke Kelly at the university of Virginia. A lot of that early focus, again, because I was a physical educator and I was working with them was in the schools 
lot of focusing on motor development. I ended up doing an, uh, an intervention-based study for my dissertation. But since then, I've, I've really started to take a broader, I guess, more sociological, more philosophical view into the stuff that I'm looking at, not just at an individual level of why is this person moving differently, but what are the structures in place? What are the things, the practices, the policies? What are the other influences that exist that may help or hinder this person in their movement goals, whatever that might be? And so, yes, a lot of my work has been with autistic individuals. I've done work with with ages from pre-toddler to geriatric ages. But really, unlike, say, you know, a lot of people where they may narrow in the more they go at it, I'm, I'm feeling I'm going bigger and bigger and broader and broader as, as I realize, well, okay, here are these issues, say, in a, in a classroom or the things that might influence a kid in their fundamental motor skills, whether, you know, it might be the home environment, the classroom experience, whatever. But that's situated in a bigger community, and that is situated in even bigger society. And so what are these sort of cascading factors that ultimately influence not just that one particular kid, but larger groups as a whole? That's a lot of uh, like, those are some big (laughs) ideas in, in, you know, describing uh, yourself, you know, and I think it's been interesting to see your work because I think I have seen, I I think I could have followed that because, you know, I, I think I've cited one of your first works about like fundamental motor skills and autism that you had. And, you know, and and I think you did a few other pieces around that, you know, some scoping systematic reviews around it and such. And then since then, and I've worked with you a little bit too on stuff, but it does seem like you've, you've gotten more open, big picture of things. And I think also, I don't know, look at areas of physical activity and stuff that haven't been looked at before. So I blame Luke Kelly for that, by the way, entirely. (laughs) He, He sat me down the week I was packing up my office the week before we were going out. And he, he at the time knew he was likely retiring within a couple of years. And so he sat me down and he just said, look, my advisor gave me this talk 30 years ago. And he said, our field is very wide, but it's very, has very, very little depth. And I can tell you in the 30 years that I've been doing this, we haven't fixed it. And now you need to go fix that. I think in, in him planting that seed as I've become a, ultimately an, an independent researcher as a, and as an associate professor, that you ultimately start to ask questions for yourself and you don't have anybody else to, to put guardrails on that. And in the time since doing my degree, and, and obviously lots has changed in the world, it just seems every time I ask a question, I might find a, a very narrow answer or something that's ancillary to it, then it leads into a bigger and larger question of mostly, okay, that's, it's great that we may be able to change this one factor here and see improvement, but that's not going to do anything if we're not changing the society, the, the, the environment that whatever change that is gets put into place, right? We, an example just off the top of my head is, is we know uh, particularly for families of kids who have kids with disabilities, we know that the more likely parents are physically active or lead what we would consider healthy lives, we know that the kids are also going to be more likely to lead 
similar healthy lives. They're going to have what we consider as experts to be, have healthy habits, uh, appropriate levels of physical activity and nutrition, which is great. And so, okay, so we just need to help parents. But if we take that out of the context of, of the reality that people are living in today, where you may have parents working two jobs, so they leave at 6 a.m., come home for a short lunch, leave after that, and they come to come home after their kids have gone to bed or whatever, like to sleep and then to do that process all over again. If we have families who are single parents who are taking care of more than one kids, we know that parents with kids with disabilities face an innumerable number of stressors, unless we're addressing those concerns, no matter what we do in a classroom, no matter this, and, and, I'm, not, and I'm not trying to disparage the work that is done. I think it's absolutely valid work and necessary. And those incremental changes do happen. But incrementalism will only lead us so far, right? Ultimately, we're going to have to say, well, it, it, as much inclusivity as we have built into an oppressive system, the system itself is still oppressive. And so we really need systemic change of that system. And that's not going to happen from the bottom up. We, we need to also look at it from the top down too. Yeah, no, I think systemic change is probably what needs to happen. And then like, I think it's obviously it's it's incredibly hard to do that when you look at the the big society picture of things, because, you know, there's, uh, so this is something I've heard now having little kids is, you know, we have a lot of little meltdowns throughout the day. But people say, uh, parents say this, I guess, is like little kids, little problems. Cause Mm -hmm. like, you know, my daughter was really upset today because like I gave her the wrong cup you know like that's Mm -hmm. like a big but as kids get bigger and maybe even when you have adult kids or whatever it's big kids big problems and the idea is like that's you know whatever like there's high school parties and there's depression and there's you know legal things and all these things so anyways obviously like as a parent those things get really really complicated to kind of take care of and the same thing I think you know, versus like one looking at their classroom or their little research agenda line versus the whole society. It's like, those are quite daunting and not impossible, but the path forward to look at the systemic issues. If I actually want to make those changes or help contribute to those changes, I think people get overwhelmed by that thought. Oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... (laughs) I struggle with this on the regular, but existentialism is like, I mean, just to try to, to place yourself in, in, into vastness that is our, even American society, let alone global culture, like we are infinitesimally, infinitesimally small in that entire setup, right? We, as Americans, as, as people in the United States, we're, we're one of 300 plus million people, like what is one thing. But when we look at those bigger problems, it's, it's very easy to get discouraged, I think. And we could extrapolate and, and see very similar issues happening in, in just about any issue facing society, right? At, from food, agriculture, to cultural changes that are and shifts that are happening across the country, to climate change, to water resources. I mean, just any of it. I mean, even the entire public education system in the United States it's a mess, right? It's, it, and it has, there are many things that deserve radical critique, right? I think the important piece though, is to remember that within this, within this broader society, ultimately 
what we're trying to do should hopefully benefit as many people as possible, right? We, in my understanding, in my view, the, the common good of any society is really why you have a society, right? So that we set up education systems, we set up social welfare, safety networks, we set up mutual aid. We do this to make sure that every single person, no matter what their station, can make it and survive because we believe that everybody has humanity and everybody deserves to have a roof over their head, food in their belly. And I think in our world, we, we also believe that everybody has the right to equitable physical activity and sport access, whatever that might be and whatever level somebody might be able to attend to. Because we know that in addition to having appropriate housing, in addition to having appropriate education and appropriate food and, and all of those things, in order to lead a decent well-being, physical activity plays a role in that right? We are people who need to move our bodies. And, and so whether it's in our physical education classrooms or our fitness centers or our recreation departments and communities that we have in communities, the right to participate and the right to gain those skills and, and try that, that's really what the aim is. And so when we look at things as they are now, we, we know that barriers exist and they're systemic, right? They're things that are boiled in, intertwined, I mean, a lot of it, we can literally trace roots of of ableism and eugenics, even within sport contexts back a hundred years, we can see these examples. It doesn't mean that they haven't gotten better. It doesn't mean that there aren't more opportunity than there was even a decade ago. Yet, even that opportunity is still within a system that has baked in oppressions, right? And ultimately what it boils down to for me at least, is everything in our society has been constructed and and made up, right? We've made up entirely our existence, right? We have constructed what modern sports looks like. I mean, American football is not even 75 years old, right? It, It is as it is since the 50s, right? And the rules has even changed for the American football since the 1950s, right? Certain sports that we may have might have roots even further than that, but it's a construction of our modern society, right? Sport before that, before the 1800s, before colonialization, before any of these things, it looked different, right? Different cultures had different sporting opportunities. Um, Indigenous cultures had their sporting opportunities and those have changed and morphed and grown into what we know today which means that we can change and morph and grow them into something that's better, right? We don't have to hold sports and sport rules or sporting culture as sacrosanct and, you know, infallible. It's, it's all fallible. If, if we were truly to, to accept that ableism and, and other oppressions are systematically baked into our societies and they have intentional and as well as, as unintentional consequences then everything that's a construction within there also has that baked in, right? So even within our sporting contexts, the fact that we still primarily rely on gendered distinctions between sport opportunities is still placing priority on one over the other, right? And we can see an example of that in the U.S. women's soccer teams fight for equal pay, right? That the fact that they undoubtedly have a far better winning record and success comparatively to the men's team 
but are still paid at a fractional rate. So we, we can look at a system in which you say, yeah, there are opportunities that exist, which didn't happen, uh, at least in the US prior to Title IX in the 70s. But is that it? Right? Have, are we good now? You know, and, and I think we can go back to even when RGB said, you know, how, when are we good to have enough women? Like when, it was, when is it equal on the Supreme Court? And she said, nine, when nine women are on the Supreme Court, that's when we'll know, right? And just this idea of those in power aren't going to give up that power. We often have a, a pie that we look at that we're dividing up. <laughs> and if I lose the little bit that I have here, that means I'm not going to have as much. But that's really a fallacy, again, that we've created and constructed of our own. So the work that I'm trying to engage with is, is really trying to answer, well, what does that look like? How do we move from a place of, yes, we, we have work. Yes, we, we can acknowledge that we've made progress, that opportunities are better. But is that it? Have we reached peak levels of equity and justice within whatever systems we have? And, and I know we like to claim inclusivity and we love to talk about it, but what does that even mean in the long-term scale of things, right? If, if we're talking about inclusivity where there's people with different abilities, particularly disabilities and able-bodied are in the same spaces, well, I mean, that's sure that might be integrated. And yes, I guess we could call that inclusion, but is that really justice and equity? Are those individuals, can they be successful in that? in that setting, right? Do they feel like they have agency and autonomy in those particular settings, right? And if we constantly just try to insert or chip away or say, okay, we're going to make what we have here and we're just going to fit you in, we're still leaving people out, right? We're still relying on essentially the grace and the, the willingness of those who sit in those seats to say, okay, yeah, you can be included because we can make these accommodations that are necessary for you. But whatever you're coming with over here, that's too much for us. So you can't play. <laughs> you know, I think obviously there's a lot of things there. You know, where do I start? Like, I think one of your, your questions or thoughts, I think is really interesting is, have we reached the peak of inclusivity and, and equity within the current system that we have? That's kind of a big question in itself because it's acknowledging that we live and work in a system because in some ways, what would these things look like in our current system? Is even providing equal opportunities, is even providing equal pay in these systems still even enough if they're still segregated and still, you know, whatever. And there's obviously a societal aspect where they're not viewed the same. And these things happen along different groups even happen among different sports right some sports are much more valued and um and And you can yeah yeah. let's say scott you can look at um even sponsors among olympic and paralympic you know the the teams in the last olympic games even though in the u.s the olympic and paralympic group is is run and organized and and done everything but within the same IOC uh, or the whatever our USOC, whatever it is. But if you look at sponsorships of, of even the televised games for the Olympics, it was Toyota. For the Paralympics, it was Purina Dog Chow, right? <laughs> Despite companies like Toyota having and pushing narratives of 
adaptability and accessibility and like Toyota has this huge initiative where they're trying to build you know, accessible spaces and things like that but yet they're not the biggest sponsor of the Paralympic Games and it's it's seen in other oppressions right one of the I guess probably one that's more on the foresight of most people is is the idea of pride washing right during pride week all these different uh, businesses organizations governments put out rainbow flags they change their logos they say we're doing this in all this inclusivity but yet nothing ever systematically changes right there's yeah. there's still yeah. everything still exists it's just the we like to look and, and and put on this sort of facade. The um, I think it was like the Kim Kardashian did the Pepsi commercial with BLM. It was, it was right the other, away. yeah, the other. It was uh, one was of the Coke sisters or whatever. Yeah, or, it was yeah, Pepsi, whomever, but yep. whatever it was. Um, stop police violence. I honestly Pepsi. find that stuff to be the most disturbing and disgusting stuff I can see is when people are trying to make money based on, especially well not people trying to, to make money off of social movements, rather the corporations that often are one of the, the huge instigators of systematic oppression are yeah. the ones that are trying to pro- now profit off of it. And I, before we get into that, because let's talk about that, but like, I will say like, we're kind of, obviously we're going big. So we're going big picture. All right. Mm-hmm. We're definitely diverting from what I had planned. Let's do it. Yeah. I, in a few weeks, I'm going to have somebody on to talk about critiques of Special Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing some of that. They wrote a paper on it. Um, Martin Geese um, mm-hmm. wrote a paper. And in the paper, he talks a lot about how even though Special Olympics provides this avenue for sport, and obviously there wasn't anything like that before, and they do deserve some level of pat on the back for that. When you're first of something like that, I think that is important, but it's 60 years ago (laughs) and uh, Mm -hmm. they follow a neoliberal view of disability, which means that they prioritize efficiency and monetary value over everything else. And it just seems to me that in, in corporations, I mean, almost always go in that way especially large ones and and it just seems like even you were talking about the value of physical activity and the value of housing and food and that we should have those things they don't align with those neoliberal values and and education and physical activity for the joy of it and for the the pleasure of it they don't align with that and they yeah the they're incongruent and i find that i've been reading about neoliberalism the last few weeks for some research that i'm doing and it's like it's i guess it's really stems from this 1970s view of like kind of getting over the the 1960s uh you Mm -hmm. know happy-go-lucky we've since then rather than diverted to other views of the world so we've gotten more and more and more into neoliberal value of money and efficiency over pretty much every other value that we have. And it's just so over cumbersome. And I think that education in general, and you could bring physical activity in that too, becomes the place where it seems to destroy its, its the core values of it, because especially public education does not run in maybe a level of efficiency, but 
if I'm working with kids with disabilities, severe disabilities, especially like things are not going to always be efficient. <laughs> They're going to have like, and, and then the financial value educating kids with disabilities is expensive. Educating and, any kids expensive, right? Yes. I mean, and gymnasiums if, are expensive. Yeah. If, if we take education as an example, right. Going back even 200 years to John Dewey and, and Horace, Horace Mann's view of public education, it was never meant to support the, for lack of a, of a better identifier, capitalistic nature that we find ourselves in now. Public education is a meant, was meant to liberate, right? It was, it was meant to provide it in some way, right? Whether it lives up to those ideals or not, the intention behind public education is to democratize information. It is to say that no longer do we believe that information is solely the property of the erudite, political, wealthy classes that can afford it. It is for everyone. And there is a certain amount of knowledge we believe people should have, ideally to be productive citizens within a democracy, right? That's, that's an intention. Has it lived up to that? No. Has it spent the last 45 years being systematically defunded and demonized? Yeah. And it's still rooted in a heavily pre-industrialized understanding of learning, which is meant to be very, very linear. We group kids by grade level, which is also associated to birth year, as if every kid born between August of one year and the July of the next year are at any bit the same level when they enter or exit grades, yet we move them forward in the same processional line. We think as kids go that we just add in bits and blocks of knowledge and that if they want to study something different, you know, once they get to say uh, an undergrad curriculum, you have to take these core, which will establish whatever. And then if you want to do a degree, we'll just put in these six classes. And if you want to change, oh, you just do these six classes as if that really prepares anybody for, for anything, right? And if that's if it, at all how people learn just by shoving pieces of knowledge into our brain. And there's the reason we do that. And it, it is because of neoliberal values, which place, like you said, capital production and efficiency over anything else. And just to prod it, what you said earlier about corporations, not people, people run corporations, right? And, and I think we sometimes do ourselves a disservice to say, well, this is a, it's a corporate issue. Well, there's 20, 30 people behind any corporate decision. And those are actual people making actual money. And I can get in trouble for this probably. But if you think of any type of person who has made their money and who are living in a state of wealth that is far and above the average, none of that wealth has been generated through what we would consider completely humane and inclusive practices. Every bit of wealth is often generated over, over essentially the, the exploitation. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. Exploitation <laughs> of some other working group. Right. I mean, and yeah, it, I'm sure there's except there's always exceptions to the rule, but Very um, few, right. I've, I've, I've yeah. yet, I've yet, I've yet to find one. And every time I bring this up, that's, that's always what somebody says, Oh, there's gotta be an exception. There's gotta be, 
there has to be a billionaire who's good. And it's like, maybe if there was, I don't know about was, a billionaire, but, but maybe I mean, even a millionaire, you look at the Flint water <laughs> crisis, the Flint water crisis has been estimated to, to take around $150 million yeah. to fix. But that is an issue that is, that is affecting. I mean, even that, that issue affects kids schooling, et cetera, $150 million. You can't tell me that a billionaire can't spend one tenth of a billion dollars to fix this problem, but they'd rather build space rockets and go off into space and just big joyride machines. But I know that's that's an aside, but that's kind of that is sort of where my work is going is trying to understand how our little niche is in this bigger ocean of issues and, and how do we go about addressing these things, not in a way that's going to trickle down because I don't think trickling down ever works with anything. But the idea that if we make these systematic changes and make them intentional throughout, that it's ultimately going to have greater impacts um, when we start looking at these these more sort of community level school-based issues. So you recently published uh, a book called Not Playing Around Intersectional Identities, Media Representation, and the Power of Sport. And uh, I want to, you know, what I read some of it, and appreciate that uh, and congratulations thank you and um i want to talk get a little bit on some of the stuff that i saw in it so um you talked about barriers often encountered by people with disabilities and how they're often uh due to social construction of reality Mm -hmm. um i want can you describe concisely maybe um what that means and how uh, a ape teacher can use that information to try to make you know their block like you know their neck of the woods um a better and stronger place so that that phrase so, so social construction of reality is is rooted in sort of broader thoughts of how knowledge how truth is is possible is it, how do we understand it right and we can certainly look at at truth as as there being singular truths that exist and, and our goal is to try to find them and i i more or less struggle with the idea that there are singular truths mostly through my own experience but also in working with these groups understanding that there is so many ways <laughs> that people can experience things or relate to things or, or just try that reality is ultimately what we construct of it, right? If, if you were somebody, and this maybe is a bad example, but I think of the, what is it? It's the M night Shyamalan movie, the village or something like that, where it's this through the whole movie, you think it's this maybe pilgrim esque era where it's people are, yeah. yeah, the village, that's it. But then you realize that they're actually in today's time, like they're, they're in modern times. And so the reality of the people living in that community was the fact that they were very small. They didn't know what was around them. They believed a monster was in the woods, that they lived this very simplistic sort of ruralistic lifestyle that we don't see much today. But yet outside of that reality, there's a whole nother reality. And so if we, if we put that into context, in terms of our our daily lives, right? How we or how any individual may view anything 
it is entirely based on how they are going about understanding that within their own contexts, right? The knowledge that they are given, whether it's through certain authoritative or, or, or traditional ways of passing down information. You know, I'm sure most of us can probably name some things that our grandparents or elders did, and we do it that way because, well, they did it that way. We have my, my spouse, my partner has recipes from her grandparent, and we do it the exact same way because that's how the recipe is, and that's just how it's passed down. But then, you know, as adults, you go into other people's homes and you learn, oh, that really weird thing that my family did isn't the norm, isn't what everybody does. And I, I, the idea of social constructions of reality is really just taking that premise and expanding it ad nauseum to, the, to broader society, right? That ultimately there are, there are likely things that we have common agreement on. But how we come to that is going to be wildly different. And, and how we come to debate those things is going to be wildly different. And so if we think about the classroom experiences, it's important to recognize that as a practitioner, you are going into those environments with all of your preconceived notions and experiences and biases and good and bad, right? And it's also important to recognize that, that most of us in this field likely at some point in our lives have had success or enjoyment, or have found a reason to make our professional careers related to physical activity, movement, physical education, whatever. And that isn't the view of every single person in the world, <laughs> let alone even every single kid in your particular classroom. Even the colleagues that you have in your particular building may not have had those good experiences. It's more likely than not most people have had very bad experiences with physical education. They may have had experiences, their parents may have had bad experiences. So kids come to you having this potential preconceived notion from their parents about what to expect when they come to the PE classroom. We have popular depictions of physical educators being bad teachers of what the PE environment looks like. And, and so when kids come to PE, unless they're five years old, and in which case they typically come with just outright joy all the time, which is why they were one of my favorite groups to ever work with. But even among those kids, what happens in that class then becomes a part of their constructive reality in physical education. And so if we are to impart in kids the importance of physical activity, of, of being able and, and feeling competent to move our bodies and, and have success that have success, we need to frame our PE experiences and adaptive PE experiences around that construct, right? That yes, it is absolutely important that we have movement skills that we're focusing on, that we build certain fitness activities that, that kids learn how and why we play certain games or how to do them. And, but it's also important to recognize that they should be having fun every kid should be having fun, right? That, that there should be levels of success that they want to take that, that thing that, you, that they learned in your classroom and do it at home or find peers outside to be able to play a game or, or feel comfortable enough to ask their parents, hey, I, I, I want to join this particular sport club because we did it in PE and it was really fun and I want to try it over here. And I, too often although I think unintentionally, we don't do that well because we often focus very heavily on 
particular ways of moving your body, right? There's mature forms of how to do certain skills and there's the appropriate way to do them. And there's an appropriate way to do a particular sport. And we hold rules and standards and criteria as sacrosanct. And again, a part of this is, is because that is how we've set up public education. That's how we've set up the classroom to be accountable, to have these rules. That's what funding comes in. We have to do this fitness testing because it's required. So I get those things. I also know that within the field of kinesiology and, and adapted PE and, phys and physical education, that our roots are based in those corrective models, right? That, that often kinesiology from the outset has been there to make corrective measures for whatever reason, for health that or well-being, however we're defining it now. And whether that's changing gait so you improve VO2 max, improving diet or whatever, motor skills to make sure you're competent, yet we still uplift that, prioritize that and, and perpetuate that as we go out and, and we train teachers and teachers go into classrooms. And, and so what do you do about that, <laughs> right? Well, how do, you, how do you push back against that idea? Well, it, it is decentralizing that standards focus, that fitness testing focus from the curriculum, from, the, from what it experiences kids get in the classroom, right? Yes, we should be working on motor skills. Yes, there are certain things we need to be able to do, but a kid should not walk away from a PE class if they had trouble, say, stepping with the right foot while overhand throwing, feeling like they're a failure, right? We know socially that based on social expectations that we place on girls differently from boys, there's a reason why many girls never actually achieve what we would consider a mature form of throwing, right? That they constantly struggle with that. It has nothing to do with anatomy, biology, or anything that goes into that, but yet what we expect from different kids in and outside of the classroom and, and in our society, right? Boys are expected to throw. They're expected to get up and do things. Girls are not, right? If we attribute that to kids with disabilities, disabled kids are not often expected to do these things, right? They're not often allowed the opportunities that perhaps their able-bodied peers might have the opportunity to do, right? Where they have just chances to practice and chances to throw and chances to move their body. Everything for disabled kids becomes therapy, right? We often try to push back against the idea that adapted PE is therapy, but when we enact it, right? We do it the exact same way in the exact same prescription that we might do physical therapy or occupational therapy. It's put into the IEP. They have to reach these goals. These are the things they have to do. And so where's the joy, right? Where is the opportunity for them to find things, opportunities that they like to do and carry that through? And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to suggest that people in the field are not doing what they're supposed to be doing or we're harming kids. But if we're constantly saying to kids, as they go through public schools, this is when you get pulled out and you have to do this because it's on your IEP and we have to get through these because they're on the goal and the state makes sure that I meet each of these things. <clears throat> it becomes very, very prescriptive, right? It becomes very much a thing that has to get done and there's no engagement. There's no enjoyment. There's no kids just finding, yeah. oh, I did this. I'm successful here. I want to do more of it. I, and so- yeah, if we if we uh, think about that and we think about our constructions and just come to that and recognize that it, it that at least starts the process. 
I recently have had two, like literally in one day, I had two teachers from different states contact me, telling me about how their PT services are supplanting their APE services on our APs and stuff. And I look at PT as very much that very fix this skill posture, whatever it might be. And again, yep. those things can be good or they can be helpful. And sometimes they can be whatever. And, um, you know, but physical education really shouldn't be looking like or adapted. shouldn't just be that either. It shouldn't be a whatever, the poor man's version of PT, where we're just learning on, you know, the proper fundamentals of a skill or something like that. So, no, I I think that's good. I think, and and it's, it's hard to, you know, I'm sometimes apprehensive to, to sort of say these things out loud that come into my mind. Because I don't, I don't want them misconstrued as, as I'm, I'm attacking those who are doing this work or those who have fought in the time before me to come and do this work. I, have, I mean, yeah. absolutely necessary and valid and, and 100%. But I think any of our processes need active, continual critique, right? And, and how we do things now is part because we've, again, we've constructed them to be this way. It's also been a part of things that have happened outside of our control. And because we have to do them this way, right? I mean, for so long, the, the thought that adapted PE could be taken away by literally deleting a paragraph from the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, like you take away that paragraph, you could literally take away every bit of funding that is earmarked for adapted PE. And so that fear, I'm sure, keeps people to say, well, we have to do this. We have to present this evidence. We have to do it this way in order to make sure yeah, so whatever decision maker ahead of us is is not just going to say, well, I don't think that's important. Ah. We're just going to strike it. And, yeah. and that that reactive sense, I think, has been necessary. But at some point, we have to start taking a proactive approach and we 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 can no longer simply rely on the fact that an institution, even such as education, that that supposedly is a bedmark of democracy, even existing in its present state or in the way it does. I mean, it's constantly under influence, change, fight. It's it's a huge system that is not properly funded. Teachers are taken advantage of, teachers are leaving. All these things are going into place. And, and to constantly react to the things that come to us, we're never going to make the progress we need to and ultimately to make it so that those we're working with have the confidence to lead lives that they feel good about. Yeah, I agree. And the thing about the law, I said this, I think I heard Nancy Spencer say this at a conference who's University of Alberta. Who yeah, I, I love Nancy. Did some awesome stuff on this podcast a few years ago now. But uh, she said some stuff about how, you know, in America, we use the law, the law, the law, the law. They don't have that law. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's like the, we make the law mm-hmm. and uh, the field existing creates the law. And however, I think there's been a, thing where we over rely on just defining ourselves based on a paragraph in the law and that becomes the thing that we get to point to as our value or what who we are and what we are versus that there's this large community of professionals that create who we are we create the future who we are and, and that the law is really a byproduct of us being a community in a field versus um i think looked on as the creation or the bedrock of our field yeah i think we we also look at laws and 
and consider them that's what we're shooting for right yeah and i i think in any case and i've i didn't think of this but any law that we have is a baseline right i heard this said about ada like ada was meant to be a floor right but it's been used as the ceiling the floor should be accessibility right and that's what the law is supposed that's what the law advocates is that no matter what we should always consider accessibility that should be baked in and that's what idea to me is also saying no matter what these things should be baked in unfortunately i think the way it's it's leveraged in our society and used is we look at that and go okay well that's just an excuse to continue doing what we're doing and if we need to make these exceptions over here we will and maybe we don't have to because as we love to do and put in very very gray and abstract language reasonable accommodations again if we think about social constructions of reality my reasonable might be vastly different than what your reasonable is right and if we are only believing that well what we have is fine and it's worked fine for everybody else well now if you have somebody who comes in disability or not that that does not work for well that's their problem right and that that again i think goes back to the even in disability cultures this very individualistic neoliberal capitalistic colonialistic view of well what is the responsibility of society and the individual right and if if laws are meant to be guidelines for a society well we can't put that on the individual onus to always make sure that is everything can i actually access everything right and if it's not oh do i have the ability to hire a lawyer or who i whoever whoever to to go through the process to make sure that it actually takes part instead of society looking at that law and going okay well let's just start here <laughs> and we'll start with the idea that we'll make things accessible at a baseline and then if there's other issues that come up if somebody can't access things okay we can adapt that from there but that's not what we do right we we don't do that we we like to say that we build curriculum to reach every student and we don't we we offer curriculum for a very very narrow set of kids and expect everyone else to assimilate into that process good bad and indifferent when we think of that we don't believe alternatives to be even possible again because our education system is not set up in a way that prioritizes growth and learning and and well-being within children and even young adults and adults what it's set up to do is is for compliance right it is comply with this learn this thing that we think is important when you're supposed to learn it whatever that might be and when you do it then you get a grade and we tell you good job and we move you up to the next one even if you don't we'll give you a bad grade and still move you along and our system is just not set up in order to really take take heed of what we espouse or we like to tell ourselves are the important aspects within education right we 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 boil them down to test grades honor rolls those types of elements which are great i mean but grading we know is a poor system to really give kids a, a good understanding of a what they're learning and what their effort is it is more just a oh you complied on this assignment here's your grade you did a good job it 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 is less about really engaging kids into the learning process or communicating and, learning yeah 
exactly right yeah it, and, and um great grades are then also used as a neoliberal value system to get into yep. colleges and get scholarships yep. and they become the priority doesn't become what i've learned it become which yep. again is the entire it's kind of an issue with yeah. uh the two systems uh, or and, I, and I i'm sure you two and, systems and, but yeah yeah and i'm and i'm sure you've seen it in, in experience too and I'm, I'm i'm sure there's folks listening whether they're in higher ed or even in even in the public schools or wherever that without <laughs> without fail there's usually at least a couple of kids who come into every new semester, every new year going, what do I need to do in order to get an A? And that is not the same thing as what am I going to learn here that is going to benefit me in the future, right? It's a checkbox. It's a, oh, I got that done, that done, I'm great, I'm done, that's over here, I don't have to think about it ever again. But it's, the, system, it's, yeah. the system requires it, requires yeah, exactly. it to some degree. Right. Well, it so, does, right? And that, and yeah. and I, and that is where I think a lot of us feel powerless in actually making these types of changes. But when we think about it again, we've created and constructed education. We've created and constructed what sport opportunities look like in schools, after school, in communities. We've we've created all of these things, right? We've made them up <laughs> entirely. They they never existed before. Somebody at some point decided this is what it should be. And enough people said, sure. And we went with it. And we really haven't done much since then other than lionize those processes and, and just etch them in stone and say, we can't change it. Sorry, that's the way the system is. Why, why, right? Why does it have to be this way? If we've constructed it, we can construct something better. And, and is, that, is that gonna be a hard process? Absolutely. Right. I mean, reconstructing something that, that has been in and of most all of our lives for the vast majority of, of what we can even remember, it's going to take a lot to change that. And, and what, what is needed or what it might look like in the future, none of us might be able to predict what that might look like. But when we're in our small little areas, we can have major ripple effects if you're just the one person that says, you know what, I'm, I'm not gonna focus so much on the grade this semester, right? Yeah, ultimately I'm gonna have to put in grades because that's what the state requires me to do. But here's how I'm gonna set it up so that the kids know this is a learning process, right? Are there opportunities where a kid can su submit an assignment, they get feedback, reinforcement, and they get to redo it again, right? Is there ways to say, well, this is a learning process. Which is standards-based grading, at least the philosophy yeah. of it is that there's, the ability to like redo it and that it's all about and that the idea is we do, I, I teach this in my one of my classes we just went over last week and i the idea that you did something in week one and you're unable to do it and you're graded on that and that same thing you're graded again on in week eight and you can do it perfectly and flawlessly that your original grade doesn't change even though it doesn't matter that you didn't know it then all you're doing is showing that you learned something so like the idea of grading is not it, it it's purposeful and it's yeah. that it's trying to communicate yeah. but um it's not a summative process right it's not a fine yeah thing. and i mean I, I i like that system quite a bit but it, it still gets into the idea that we're working within a system that's already flawed and it's finding the p like there's like kind of seems to be two ways to go about these things that you're talking about it's changing the system is one and the other one is finding the peaks that we can identify of inclusivity and 
um, making things more equitable and such. But what are the heights of those peaks and, and are they enough and likely no? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I think that's what you're, you're getting at generally with these things. So, yeah, it's it's hard to look at these bigger, broader issues and, and all their, their intricacies. And like you said, you can feel just be frozen by the sheer amount of stuff that needs to be fixed or corrected. And, and most of most of us will never be in a position of power to, to have the type of power to be able to change all the things that we wish to, to change. But a benefit, particularly within our country, is, is we do give, we do empower people. So we try to tell them that, that you do have control over what you do, right? And, and the spheres that may be within your influence, right? And our system of government is really intended to be a, a, a representative government of the people, right? The people vote for the, the, their direct representatives and they're meant to enact rules that are, that are directly tied to their citizenry. Yet we know that doesn't always happen in the best possible ways or, or maybe certain minority groups within those larger groups are the ones that have the loudest voice or the most money. And obviously any individual teacher, depending on what state they're in or, or what have you, may have more or less power in order to be vocal about any type of these issues, right? I mean, in, in states that have typically more powerful unions or, or organizations that will have their teachers back, teachers might be a little bit more confident to voice concerns regarding these types of things or to, to, to be open to doing practices that, that may not fit the standard norm, right? That, that the culture of a school may be such where the type of grading that we were talking about, or even things like ungrading, right? Where we move actually away from the systems of grades that we have into something that is actually representative of learning, that there might be opportunities for that, but it is really dependent on those around you and, and the, the spheres of influence that you may have control over there. And, and none of this changes overnight, right? And, and it takes, all it takes though is, is one person starting that conversation to say, is this really the best that we can possibly do? Is, is, is there another way that we can go about doing this? Do you have control over how you use and how you view grades or, or opportunities within your classrooms? And can you start there? And maybe that might influence somebody else in your building or in your district to say, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe I'm going to try that, and it and it can start from that way, right? And so, yeah, there's there's folks that, I mean, of course, have to go for the top and 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 try to work down from that way. And I I, I hope I'm I'm trying, <laughs> in whatever ways I can, to throw whatever minuscule amount of influence I have to try to be in that space because I know I have the privileges that are afforded to me through my position to do so. But on the other side, it's also just getting folks at that grassroots level, at the people who are actually enacting these things and who are actually using the pedagogical practices in their, in their daily lives to say, oh, is, is this the best that we can do? Can we find another way to go about it? And, and, and starting that conversation. And, and again, I, and I don't think anybody could ever say, this is how you should do it, <laughs> right? What I think, again, because of it, this, this social construction is important, whatever comes about within those communities has to be a product of the people who, who stand to gain 
the most and, and are impacted the most from whatever decisions are made. So teachers in those communities, parents, kids, other folks who, who have a reason for buy-in, they should be at the table having these discussions. And, and we got to find ways in, in order to bridge those gaps and, and make those connections so people can actually talk to each other and not just past each other. Because uh, the systems we have in place just don't afford that at all. Absolutely. Well, Andy, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and getting into these big picture kind of issues, you know, and, and it feels like I'm about to go on a trek a little bit with a lot of the podcasts that I have lined up talking about these things. So I appreciate you helping us jump off and, and yeah. you know, start on these big issues um, that have you know, the solutions are vague and difficult and, uh, you know, but I think that's, you know, we have to start the questioning first. So thank you again for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much. Scott, for having me.